So my reference point is May 25th, 1961, JFK said, by the end of the decade, we will have a man on the moon. A big ambition was laid out and a big challenge was laid out. And how did we get there? We needed collaboration. We needed ingenuity. We needed engineers doing what they do best and we needed problem solving. And we did it. We just need that big hurrah statement of we can do it and let's go and do it. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Leverson. Join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience beyond the future of our planet. You may have heard a lot about hydrogen, and it's certainly the hot topic at the minute. From hydrogen-powered buses to the UK government's hydrogen village trial, through to Holland's Hydrogen One project, Europe's largest hydrogen generation project enabling the shift to renewable petrol, diesel, and aviation fuel. Now, as with every hot topic, there's a lot of demystifying required. And for this episode, I'm so excited to be joined by Graham Wilson, the Nordic's regional director at Warley, who are one of the leaders in bringing hydrogen to our everyday lives. Over the course of the episode, we touch on the role hydrogen has in the future of our planet, the different types of hydrogen, from brown hydrogen through to green hydrogen, and what this means. The bottlenecks that we need to tackle to allow us to scale this across all homes and businesses. The need to evolve our infrastructure project business models to reflect our societal and environmental priorities, and so much more. Before I pass over to Graham, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. And with that, let's welcome Graham. So I'm Graham Wilson. I'm the regional director for the Nordics for Warley. So that means I look after Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and Norway. I've been with the company now for four and a half years. I've had a mixture of roles over the last 15 years, from engineering to project management, business management, and business development, and senior leadership roles. Today, I find myself in Copenhagen, where I moved about six months ago with my wife and kids. I'm jealous of Moo, Copenhagen. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. It is. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. The kids love it. My wife loves it. I love it. It's getting used to Danish life, which is fantastic. I love it. I'd love to just start with a big question around decarbonization. Obviously, it's a big priority at the minute, but it can mean so many different things. I know that you spend a lot of your time focused on big engineering challenges and the decarbonization challenge that comes with some of these large emitters and traditional industry. What does decarbonization look like for you? I think it, for me, the best way I would describe it is it's one large jigsaw that we need to find out what the pieces are and then find out what the picture is and slowly try and put it together. But then when I mean slowly, I really mean is that as quick as possible what you need to put it together because we see around the world what the effects of climate change have and so we really need to move forward with it. But we also need to answer that challenge of how do we do it in a, in a well-thought-out manner because a lot of the infrastructure that we have today relies on the past way of doing things, uh, fossil fuels, etc., and all the clothes that we wear. So we can't do it overnight, as everybody said. How do we do it in a phased manner that allows people to live as normal a life as possible? And, and that's where I believe engineering comes in to try and find out what that jigsaw puzzle is and what the picture is and trying to come up with the solutions to build it. 
Because it's, it's a really interesting challenge because I think it, it requires so many different types of expertise and so many different types of stakeholders all coming together. And yeah. I think if you look at this, where a lot of the, the innovation funding sits, it's in the more real science R&D end of the spectrum. But actually, one of the points that's come up increasingly over just the conversations that I'm having is actually large part of it is an engineering problem and it's, it's adopting new methods of delivering these solutions. What, what does that engineering challenge look like exactly? I think the engineering challenge is, is probably the biggest opportunity that I have ever seen in, in engineering, actually, my relatively short career. The, the challenge is that we need to deploy a new infrastructure based around driving towards net zero, so different fuel types and, and different ways of working at the same time as trying to utilise the existing infrastructure that we have deployed you know, over the past 100, 150 years. So the, so the challenge is trying to work in parallel with that massive scale of infrastructure is required to get us towards net zero. And to do that, we require technology companies working at pace and at scale to get these brand new technologies out there as quickly as possible because that is going to be the answer to driving towards to net zero. So I think that's a, that's a really uh, large challenge because these things take time and, and engineering is all about assurance and making sure things are, are done correctly and generally that means that you need more time to do things so you, you might want to check once twice three times especially for some of these large projects that are going to be required but unfortunately we're going to need to change that to say how can we do things differently which aren't aren't it doesn't mean that we're uh, giving up anything in assurance but how do we do things differently so that we can deploy things at scale as at pace without missing any steps. And that's a challenge in itself because that's not how we've worked for the last uh, 50, 60 years in deploying solutions into the energy sector. I remember some data points came out of Bayes around the number of organizations that count as large emitters in the UK. It was a good couple of thousands of these large industrial companies that are pumping out a fair amount of CO2 and have been for quite a few decades. It's quite an interesting engineering challenge because these companies are private entities producing a product that they have done for decades. And there's now this external pressure for them to then completely change and reinvigorate their industrial process to meet the needs of society and the environment. And the question always then comes back to, okay, but does the business model make sense? And I know that there's a lot of effort at the minute to carry out feasibility studies to really demonstrate to a lot of these large emitters that it does make sense. What does that business model look like for actually converting over to cleaner fuels or really just decarbonizing in general? So I think it's a very, very big question and I think it's got a number of different answers to it. But I think, you know, at Worley, we did a, a paper called From Ambition to Reality and we've just done a reiteration of it and and one of the things that we we were looking at that was really well defined in that report is about an initiative for the future is about broadening value and what, what does it look like from an economic point of view and if we can if we continually 
focus on if it's just for economic, then everybody's in business and everybody needs to make profit. But if we really focus on it just being economic, then unfortunately things won't move at pace. So uh, what 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 Warley have suggested, and, and I guess what I would suggest as well, it needs to whatever business model it comes up with in the future needs to move from a an economic business model to a social, economic, and environmental business model model. So those three pillars that that looks at the business model to make sure that everybody need, is in business for the sake of being a business and addressing back to share, shareholders and investors. But they're also doing the right thing by driving towards net, net zero. And they're also doing the right thing from a so, social point of view that they're del- delivering back into the communities that they work with and work for. Those three aspects are very, very difficult to do. But until we just move to that point and, just, and, and, and keep on thinking about economics, then we're not going to see things move at the pace that we require it because we're always going to need government to step in and subsidise and subsidise and subsidise. And I think you'll see that. I mean, there's quite a lot of announcements about the wind industry at this moment in time and the level of subsidy that's required there, but you've still got a lot of people losing money on the jobs that they do in wind. So that can't, you know, that can't just be the answer. I mean, that's a, that's a data point that we can look at. So I, 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 would, I, would, I would push forward with, you know, how do we make sure that we've got those three of social, economic and environmental within a business model? Yeah, I completely agree. And I actually came out the other day with a bit of a prediction around the idea of community net gain. So we're, we're all familiar with the idea of biodiversity net gain with most organizations legislated that they have to essentially leave areas better than they found them and have a 10% biodiversity net gain in that area. And that affects all types of organizations in the UK. I really see a future where we've got this idea of community net gain, where we're leaving communities better than we found them and, and work in a lot more closely with, with local communities on these large infrastructure mega projects to really try and work together to find a bit more of an equilibrium. So we're not just introducing a sort of hard bit of infrastructure. We're also actually working with the community to invest, to actually leave the best than we found them. And I think obviously we hear a lot about some of the pushback that National Grid are getting at the minute around planning permits for their, their great grid upgrade. And a lot of the pushback that they have from local communities. I know that National Grid are doing all that they can to, to work with them. And they are making a lot of headway. But actually, I see a future where there's some sort of legislation where we're actually adding a lot more value to communities. And uh, I mean, I coined it as community net gain. We'll see if that sticks, but uh, we'll have to check in in a couple of years. But I know that there's so much change happening in the UK market at the minute. And you mentioned offshore wind, obviously a massive source of renewable energy generation there that the UK is pushing towards. I know that hydrogen is, is one of the big themes at the minute and it gets a lot of press at the minute. It's definitely a, a bit of a cool energy source. It's very quite trendy. It's got a lot better PR team than nuclear. What does, what does hydrogen look like in the minute? Is there a future for the UK and Europe where hydrogen is one of the core sources? Well, I, you know, I, I think so. And my view is that, that hydrogen uh, needs to be one of the building blocks of, of the future and definitely in the UK and definitely in the EU. Given that, we need to move to a more sustainable fuel source at, at some point. 
think the challenge is what happens with it and where does it go and how is it used, etc. which is one of the things that's going to really need to be engineered. We're going to need to engineer a solution for for not just the generation of hydrogen, but also the use of it and where does it go, how is it used, how is it developed. I think hydrogen, as I said, needs to be the building block for that. I think if I can look at it in the EU and where I sit in the Nordics at this moment in time, there's a lot of hydropower available that allows for the generation of green hydrogen now. If you don't mind me just jumping in, you've referred to green hydrogen there. I think it might just be worth breaking down the whole spectrum of gas. And it starts with almost black and brown gas, which is gas generated from burning coal. You then move through the rainbow, almost touching on gray gas, which is natural gas with the CO2 released. And if you then capture that CO2, that then makes it blue gas. You can then move through to, to red gas, which is gas generated through nuclear. And then finishing up with, with green gas, which is gas generated from renewable energy. So it's quite an interesting spectrum because I think that when people think of hydrogen, they think of this amazing, clean energy source and hydrogen powered buses, etc. But actually a large portion of the hydrogen that we talk about isn't necessarily purely green, renewable energy sourced hydrogen. Some of it is from natural gas, but with the CO2 captured. So I think differentiating it is, is quite an important nuance. I think that's a good point to come in. For us to be successful in the production of hydrogen, we're going to need to consider all forms of hydrogen up until a certain point. So we see that the UK are deploying blue hydrogen at scale. And the Nordics, they're talking about hydrogen from nuclear because nuclear is a source. So I think, I think we, we need to understand on the phasing of where is the power coming from? What available power is there? What color does that then determine? And then how do we use that? And in the future, where's the future power coming from? Which will inherently get it towards green. Okay, and we can have volume, volume of green. But I think that is the future, but I think there's a number of different things that we need to consider with green hydrogen and the ambition to get towards an infrastructure that's based around green hydrogen. As a, as a reference earlier, you know, Worley did a, done a paper from Ambition to Reality, and the EU have got a target of 10 million tonnes per annum in, in the renewable hydrogen by 2030. So if we sit here today, that's in seven years' time. And for that to happen, we believe that's 500 projects at large project size that are required to make that happen. And then 25 of those need to be operational by 2030. There's not as many in production or in development at this moment in time. Well, there is, but not, maybe not as advanced. But big projects like that take eight to 10 years to actually go through. So... The start date is now, and we've got eight to 10 years to develop these projects and get them operational. So already we're past that kind of 2030, so it kind of makes it at risk. And then the other part that we've got on the, in the conundrum of hydrogen, as you spoke about, the business model is the capital aspects of it. You know, capital needs to be deployed at scale. I remember a number of years ago, I, I had the pleasure of actually attending COP26 in Glasgow, right? And I, and, I, and I was really proud. I, I was there with Wally and I was really proud to attend COP26. And I thought we were starting to turn the corner and gain momentum. 
But when I was sitting down a round table in one of the mornings, I sat down to someone in the financial sector who was looking at renewable funds, etc. And I was quizzing him about, you know, the deployment of capital into these projects. And he always gave, he gave me this terminology that is like water. It flows, but it always flows towards the opportunity. So from that point of view, going back to your question earlier, the capital needs to be deployed at volume to where the opportunity is. So therefore, if we're creating more and more opportunities and hydrogen, we'll see more and more of the money flow there as well. And that's a belief I've got. And that's that's one of the things in our From Ambition to Reality report that showcases is about the deployment of capital and, and the opportunities that it can take within hydrogen to really reduce the bottlenecks, et cetera, that could be there within the business. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So where would you say the key bottlenecks are at the minute? Yeah, I think I think the key bottlenecks that we can see at this moment in time, so you've got things like we spoke about that move from economic to social, economic and environmental. There's an element that we need to enable more options. So we need to address the uncertainty through the development of all the technologies because as engineers, we really like to say what's proven and what's out there and then we'll deploy that. And all the other stuff, that's fantastic. And we'll let that in a 15-year cycle, that get, that'll get to proven and then and ready to go. We need to, have to, we need to have to have this holistic approach of, you know, what's proven and ready, but what's not there and how can we get that funnel? Because we're going to need everything. What other infrastructure requirements would you say there are around actually making it a reality? You know, that's, that's, I think that's a really, really good point. I think actual requirements are what's required to be new and what is required to be existing. And then once you've got your existing, how does that end up working and what's the phased manner of it? You know, if we don't need to build new pipelines, it's going to save capital. The capital can go to somewhere else, et cetera. So... I think starting to establish like what can be new and what can be existing um, as quickly as possible at a high level and then starting to make that work. And when we come up with a challenge, well, let's solve it as we're on this about the future of engineering. So there's a solution to every problem. So let's not get to the point where it's not solvable because of X, Y, and Z. And usually that's because of certain specifications that have been put out there or because of one person's view of something compared to another person's view of something. And we've seen in the past that collaboration's not always been there within energy infrastructure and within infrastructure in itself as well, that, you know, we're really working a siloed approach. We need to break that down and we need to break down the siloed approach to enhance collaboration to make sure that people are looking at the problem holistically. What is their aspect that they can, they can look at and help? help with that. I think after that is the deployment of new infrastructure and how we can we do that in a safe, smart and efficient way. And one of the things I am a massive advocate of is standardisation. So if we can actually standardise and move to a more product way, a related way, we can deploy new infrastructure cost effectively at scale and at pace. And that requires some really ingenious ways of working in engineering and in project delivery going forward as well as in manufacturing. So we need all of that to join up together. But with even me speaking about it now, it, it sounds like a massive thing. It sounds like a massive problem and a massive challenge that we need to come over about. Well, how do we use existing infrastructure and the new infrastructure? How do we make sure it's standardised and repeatable, etc.? What we can always hone back to is 
150 years ago, it was everything was on coal, for example. We still had horse and cart as, as a main mode of transport, etc. And okay, we've went through the industrial revolution, and there's some good things and some bad things that's came through it. But we've solved this big infrastructure problem before. You know, we have what we have today because of the the genius we have in engineering deployment of solutions. So we can do it again. And that's the opportunities I see between uh, deployment of new infrastructure and the reuse of existing infrastructure. I think it's such an important point because it can always seem so scary of this massive, big transition that we need to do. But actually, like you said, we've transitioned before and we, we just need to get started, really. We've got the skills, we've got the capabilities, we've got the resources. And it's just a case of actually working together to, to make it happen. And ultimately, the solutions exist. And the stat I, I always love to point out is from McKinsey, that's quoted quite widely. It's 78% of the solutions we need to solve climate change already exist. The, the challenge isn't really an R&D or sort of science-based challenge. It's an engineering challenge. It's around actually connecting the dots and actually bringing existing solutions to life at scale. So I think that hopefully might bring people maybe some confidence and make people feel a little bit more comfortable with the challenge ahead. And it is a big challenge, but we have the resources to do it. I think that's the case is it's a massive challenge, but we've got the resources to do it. And thinking about this podcast today, I was, I was thinking about, you know, when have we overcame challenges? What did that, you know, what did that look like? So my reference point is, May 25th, 1961, JFK said, by the end of the decade, we will have a man on the moon. At that point in time, and luckily my dad was alive then, so he, he can remember hearing the broadcast. And he thought, as a young child, wow, wow, inspiration. How's that actually going to happen? He can remember my granddad, his dad, saying, that's never going to happen. That is never going to happen. And to this day, when he announced that, 58% of Americans were either opposed to it or did not think it was going to happen. But in 1969, when we, first when Neil Armstrong was on the moon, think about all the stories you hear of everybody huddled either around their television or the radio listening to the broadcast and living in it, and we still talk about that to this day. So in 1961, a big ambition was laid out and a big challenge was laid out. And how did we get there? We needed collaboration. We needed ingenuity. We needed engineers doing what they do best and we needed problem solving. And we did it. And, and I think, you know, if I cling on to some hope is that we've done it before and we can do it again. We just need that big hurrah statement of we can do it and let's go and do it. And I think that's something I was always hark back to. What an amazing call to action to finish on. It's we've got the capabilities. It's really just a case of working together to make it a reality. Graham, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.